Hi friends, Justin Hibbert here. Can I ask a huge favor? If you're blessed by this podcast, if you've learned something from it, if this has been helpful to you, would you do me a huge favor and buy me a cup of coffee? Okay, don't really buy me a cup of coffee, but pretend like every month you're taking me out for a cup of coffee. How do you do this? You become a patron. It's just $5 a month to become a patron. It's the cost of a cup of coffee. It's all I'm asking. If you could be so generous in doing that, it will go a long way in supporting me, this podcast, and some big plans I have for Why Catholic. All you need to do is go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Thank you for your help. God bless you. I've been loosely following some of the developments in the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest Baptist denominations. Without going into too much detail, one of its largest and most prominent churches, Saddleback Church in Southern California, started by a popular evangelical pastor named Rick Warren, chose to appoint some female pastors to its staff. The Southern Baptist Convention does not allow female pastors, and so they decided to defellowship, aka kick out, Saddleback Church from the denomination. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Baptist tradition, Baptists tend to have a very short and very basic statement of beliefs. They're not a creedal community like Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, or Presbyterian churches. And Baptists are not like Catholics where we have a thick catechism with well-defined details. At the Southern Baptist Convention's annual conference, Rick Warren noted this as he spoke up for Saddleback, saying that Baptists are not a creedal community, but rather have always operated under consensus. In other words, there are some guidelines and loose guardrails, but no Baptist church has ever had to 100% adopt a Baptist creed. He argued that Saddleback was in agreement with 99% of the beliefs of Southern Baptists. This, in his opinion, was a very small detail. On the other hand, Al Mohler Jr., who represented the Southern Baptist Convention, argued that this practice may be 1%, but it's a big 1% and not one they were willing to overlook or bend on. And so Saddleback was free to continue their practice of having female pastors, but they could no longer do so and be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I have a link in the show notes to a video of the debate. You can see where both sides are coming from. Rick Warren is absolutely right. Baptists are a bottom-up group that operates under consensus. But on the other hand, the Southern Baptist leadership is calling into question Saddleback's level of consensus. After all, consensus is only consensus if we can all agree on what constitutes as consensus. Hi, this is Justin Hibbern. You're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We are in a series on the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In previous episodes, we've been looking at both the unity and the diversity of the Catholic church. In the last episode, we looked at how the hierarchy developed over time to protect and preserve the unity of the church. Today, I want to talk about the development of doctrine. When I was a Baptist, one of the things I never understood about Catholicism is all of these well-defined beliefs. Why have a catechism with spelled out beliefs that people are required, so to speak, to believe? Why not just operate under consensus? The other thing I didn't understand is why some of these beliefs needed to be spelled out in the first place. Who cares whether Mary was always a virgin before and after Jesus' birth? Is that really a hill we need to die on? The short answer is that the purpose of the development of dogma, like the development of the hierarchical structure of the church, which we talked about in the last episode, is to preserve and protect the unity of the church. I want to tell you two stories that occurred in church history that will help explain why the dogmatic process exists and how it unfolds. The first story comes from the Bible, the book of Acts chapter 15. In this chapter, we read about a group of Christians from Judea, which is the region in Israel where Jerusalem is located, who traveled 300 miles or 482 kilometers north to Antioch in Syria just to tell Christians there that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. 
A little context here might be helpful. For the first little while of Christianity, pretty much all Christians were Jews. In fact, they didn't call it Christianity. They called it Ahderech, which is Hebrew for the way. The way was considered a Jewish sect made up of Jews who were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. It's not until Acts chapters 10 and 11 with the conversion of the centurion Cornelius that these first Christians realized that God's plan of salvation included Gentiles. Today, there's far more non-Jewish Christians than Jewish Christians, so we tend to forget that for the first however long of Christianity, it was the opposite. And so for these Jewish people who saw the Messiah within the larger context of Jewish history and tradition, it seemed natural and reasonable that people would embrace Jesus the Messiah within the context of long-established Jewish customs, such as the covenant of circumcision. This caused quite a stir. You can imagine how grown men might be a little alarmed that they needed to be circumcised. Two people that opposed these so-called Judaizers were Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's important to note that prior to his dramatic conversion, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a leader of the Jewish people and a stickler for Jewish customs and laws. So the fact that he disagreed with this premise that people need to be circumcised in order to be saved is a poignant detail. So here we are in the early days of the church, and suddenly we have a debate about Christian doctrine. Specifically, does one need to be circumcised in order to be saved? How did they solve this dilemma? The answer is through a church council. In Acts 15, we read about the first council of Jerusalem. This is the first recorded council of the Christian church, and here's how it happened. Paul, Barnabas, and other believers were appointed to go to Jerusalem, meet with the apostles and elders, and bring up this topic for debate so that it could be settled. So that's what they did. They explained how God was moving through Gentile communities, and many were believing in Jesus. A group of Jewish believers, sometimes referred to as the Judaizers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, objected, saying, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met and debated the question at hand. In fact, the text tells us that they debated for a long time. Then Peter, who had a hand in the Gentile Cornelius' conversion, gave his two cents. Then Paul and Barnabas gave testimony to what the Holy Spirit was doing in Gentile communities. Then James stood up and referred to the prophet Amos and God's plan of salvation for the Gentiles. Then he said, quote, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. End quote. And with that, the issue is decided. It's possible that they took a vote, but the text doesn't say it. All it says is that after James gave his opinion, based on the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, the apostles and elders agreed that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation. To make the decision clear, they wrote a letter and sent it to the northern churches along with a delegate to explain the decision. Acts 15.23-29 tells us exactly what the letter said. It reads as follows, quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. End quote. 
Acts 15 continues by telling us that when the delegates returned with the elders' decision, they were glad. They were like, great, the debate is solved. The matter has been put to bed, and now we can get on with our lives. Now let's jump ahead almost 300 years to another conflict that led to another church council. In the early 300s, there was a cleric in Alexandria named Arius. Arius argued that Jesus was not co-equal with God, that Jesus lacked the eternal and true divinity that the Father had, and that he was made God with the permission and power of the Father. It's widely believed that the idea didn't originate with Arius, but Arius was responsible for disseminating it and making it a popular belief of the day. Of course, others in the church vehemently disagreed with this notion that Jesus was less than God or created by God, and this disagreement brought a bitter division in the church. And as Arianism spread outside of Arius' diocese of Alexandria, so did the division. This Arianism debate occurred during the time when Constantine I, or Constantine the Great, was the emperor. He had just legalized Christianity in 313 after nearly 300 years of bitter persecution. Constantine was concerned about the theological conflicts that were sowing division in the church because the church was thriving and an influential part of his empire. So in order to try and squash any schisms, Constantine sent delegates to various hotbeds for Arianism to solve the debate through local discussions. However, after many failed attempts and a growing threat of division, Constantine called for an ecumenical council in 325. This would become the famous First Council of Nicaea. At this council, all 1,800 bishops from the different dioceses or regions were invited to the city of Nicaea, located in modern-day Turkey, to discuss, debate, and decide on the issue of the divinity and nature of Christ. Was Jesus co-eternal with the Father, or was he, as Arius contended, created by the Father at some point and time in history? Now, not all 1,800 bishops showed up. The record shows 318 bishops were in attendance. Keep in mind that travel at that time wasn't like today. It could take months to make the trip to Nicaea, so it was highly unlikely that all 1,800 bishops would make it. It is probable that Constantine worked out the details of the council with the Pope at the time, Sylvester I. Pope Sylvester actually didn't attend the council, opting to send delegates instead. With the absence of the Pope, Constantine himself presided over the First Council of Nicaea, which commenced in 325. As we might expect, each side made their arguments. Arius himself was summoned to various assemblies where he presented his side, and those who opposed Arius provided a rebuttal. Legend has it that the council became quite heated, and there's even the story about St. Nicholas getting so mad at Arius's blasphemy about the nature of Christ that St. Nicholas, yes, that jolly old St. Nicholas from which we get Santa Claus, punched Arius in the face, but that's probably more myth than fact. However, at the end of the day, after prayer and deliberation, the bishops presented a doctrinal statement that they believe fully represented the apostolic tradition. It stated, quote, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, that is of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Of the same substance with the Father, through him all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and our salvation descended, was incarnate, and was made man, suffered, and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and cometh to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, those who say, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was begotten, and that he was made out of nothing, or who maintain that he is of another hypostasis, or another substance in the Father, or that the Son of God is created, or mutable, or subject to change, the Catholic Church anathemizes them. End quote. 
All but five bishops enthusiastically embraced this new statement, which was a stark refutation of Arius's beliefs. Eventually, only two bishops stood opposed to this definition of the nature of Christ. In the end, Arius and the two opposing bishops were exiled and branded as heretics, and Arius's writings were burned. In Mass every week, we say the Nicene Creed, and there's this long part about the nature of Jesus. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. You can see the similarity between this section of the creed and what was decided at the Council of Nicaea. If you ever wondered why we say all these descriptions about Jesus, the reason is because the Catholic Church wanted to make certain everyone knew where it stood on the nature of Jesus. The Council also made a few other decisions. I mean, why not? It's not like today where they could get on a plane or jump on a Zoom meeting. They took the opportunity to settle a few other issues such as the date for Easter, the Militian Schism, and a number of smaller decisions such as prohibiting priests from self-castration establishing a minimum amount of time for catechumens to prepare to enter into communion with the church, provision of two provincial synods every year, and a number of other items. Do you see a similar pattern between the First Council of Jerusalem and the First Council of Nicaea? This is how dogmas evolve in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church continues to call these types of councils when needed, following the very model seen in Acts 15. I mentioned in the past that I've personally benefited greatly from the podcast on the journey with Matt Ken and Kenny, and in episode 100 titled Mary the Mother of Who, which I've linked to in the show notes, they outline the dogmatic process with words that begin with the letter D. I'm going to adopt and tweak this just a little bit because I found this to be incredibly helpful. It all begins with doctrine. Doctrine is the starting place of dogma. In the case of the Council of Nicaea, the doctrine was that Jesus was God, thus co-eternal with the Father. This doctrine is the general consensus of the church. There's no need to write it down because it's widely accepted as fact. This brings us to the second D, dispute. At some point, a dispute arises contradicting the doctrine or the general consensus, or we might even call this the tradition of the church. Then the church tries to solve it using a third D, discourse. Let's talk it out. Let's try and understand each other. And as we saw in both the issue of circumcision and in Arianism, people discuss this issue together before bringing it in front of an official council. However, like we saw in these particular disputes, sometimes the issue becomes so heated that it turns into a fourth D, division. This dispute is threatening to fracture the church. In order to address the issue, the church employs a fifth D, delegation, a formal process by which representatives of all the sides are brought together to do the sixth D, which is debate. This delegation and debate is what constitutes a council. Councils aren't called for every dispute. There have only been 20 councils since the first council of Nicaea. Councils are reserved for disputes or problems that have become widespread and are threatening or causing a severe division. And these councils lay out a process of debate where all the sides are presented and everyone has a chance to give their input. Once the debate is over, we get to the seventh D, which is deliberation. This is where the leaders of the church discuss the merits of each argument, carefully considering how each argument fits within the teachings of scripture, the apostles, and other church fathers throughout history. The eighth D is discernment, and I want to pause here and stress the importance of this point for a moment. I mentioned in the last episode that one of the things that caused me to question my Protestant background was this idea of a great apostasy where the church just went off the rails and became defunct. I mentioned that what I found difficult to accept was that it negated the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. 
Why would God go through such great lengths to redeem the world, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to empower us through the Holy Spirit, just to let his church go off the rails? It doesn't make sense. So while there may be bad actors within the church, even bad leaders at times, when the church gathers as a whole, I think it's wise to take scripture at its word. Greater is he in you than he who is in the world. Therefore, it would seem more likely that when disputes rise to the level of a council where a delegation of leaders are gathered deliberating on a particular decision, the Holy Spirit is going to work through the majority and protect the church from going apostate. Note what the letter in Acts 15 even says, quote, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, end quote. The apostles and elders credited the Holy Spirit with their decision on the matter. This leads us to the ninth D, the delegates make a decision. This decision could be an acceptance of one point of view and the rejection of the other. It could be a mixture of both points of view, but ultimately a decision gets made and it becomes the 10th D, a decree. We see this decree in the letter that's written in the Council of Jerusalem as well as the Nicene Creed. The decree then gets disseminated, which is our 11th D, throughout the church. People need to know where the church has landed on a particular issue. And this is a welcome sight. In Acts 15.31, it says that when the churches read the letter, they rejoiced at the teaching. This brings us to our 12th and final D, dogma. Now that the church has formally gone through this rigorous process of debate, now that a decision has been made, now that a decree has been disseminated, now that we all know what the church's stance is on a particular issue, Christians are bound to accept this teaching as essential to the faith of the community of Jesus. So let's recap those 12 Ds. Doctrine, dispute, discourse, division, delegation, debate, deliberation, discernment, decision, decree, dissemination, dogma. So why does the Catholic Church have a catechism full of defined beliefs about very specific matters? The answer is they needed to in order to protect the unity of the church. I want to address a common misconception about Catholic doctrine. Many people think that Catholic doctrine is only as old as when it's dogmatically defined at a council. For example, as a Protestant, I pointed to the dogma of the Eucharist, which was defined at the Council of Trent in 1562, or the dogma of Mary's Assumption into Heaven, which was defined in 1950, and said, see, Catholics are constantly inventing new doctrines. Catholics can't possibly argue that they maintain a consistent doctrine when they're defining beliefs hundreds, if not thousands of years after the time of Christ. But what I failed to understand is that Catholics operated on consensus of doctrine until consensus was no longer possible. When it was rising to the point of division, the church met to dogmatically define the beliefs and settle the matter once for all. There was so much consensus that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ that there was no need to spell it out. That's what the church just accepted as true, and pretty much every Christian believed it. But when Protestants began teaching that the Eucharist wasn't the real presence of Christ— that's when the Catholic Church had to meet and define it so as to dispel confusion and dissension. The recent ordeal of Southern Baptist churches and female pastors highlights the need for dogmatic definitions. The Southern Baptist Convention began in 1845. They're not even 200 years old, and they are quickly discovering what the Catholic Church did in its first 200 years. Consensus only works if we can agree on what falls within the parameters of consensus. This is why we have laws. It's why we have speed limits. It creates guardrails in order to protect a society. In a similar way, a catechism that says, this is what it means to be a Christian is necessary for the protection and preservation of the unity of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.